Blue Wire. The Chicago Bulls select Kobe White. Levine with the runway, lays it in! Zach Levine does it again! A shot on the oh, 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 oh. The crossover, Levine! Get up or get out the way, Trey Young! Welcome to Cash Considerations, a Chicago Bulls podcast. We're on the Blue Wire Network. We're brought to you by betonline.ag. I'm Ricky O'Donnell. I'm here, as always, with Jason Patton. Jason, we have a special episode today. We're joined yes. by, I'm going to call him my favorite Chicago sports writer, Jack Silverstein. Oh, shit. What's up? Thank <laughs> What's you. going on, what man? A, what an intro. Uh, not much. Just, uh, man, I'm... Basically, the rest of the world has caught up with me, and now everyone watches old Bulls games every night. Yeah, it's. Uh, of, I was watching. I was watching Bulls Knicks. Yeah, yeah I, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was just. It's always just crazy watching these old games. Like it's been a while. I've, I was popping it. Popped in the old Bulls DVDs recently. I've been just kind of watching those games. It's been a lot of fun. And obviously, you are uh, the ex- an expert on all of this. You've already written one book about uh, the 96 Bulls called How the Goat Was Built, uh, Six Light Lessons from the 96 Bulls. you got another book coming out in 2021. Um, that one is called Six Rings, the Bulls, the City, and the Dynasty that Changed the Game. Yeah. You have a newsletter with all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was at the sh- shot on ELO. Yep. Uh, just kind of talk about just kind of i guess to start here just kind of how you got into this how you got into doing all this bulls history stuff obviously you can talk about your book and what how how that's all going and just kind of the research you've been doing just because obviously like the current bulls are so awful and kind of just watching these games and all this old bulls nostalgia it's kind of bringing it all back to me so i think just having you on here and just kind of talking about that just gonna lift our lift our spirits here because we're always quite negative on this cash considerations podcast. So it'll be good to talk about the old bulls a bit and just going back to some of that history. Did you guys know that that when Pax came over to the Bulls as a free agent from San Antonio, uh, it was in exchange for cash? Hilarious. No, <laughs> I did the, not know that. that the, did not know that, that either. That the Bulls had to pay San Antonio what amounts to cash considerations to get John Paxson. He's been here ever since. That's just too perfect, man. How That's why that? we have you on. All right. <laughs> so... Um, it's funny that for everybody else, everyone's dipping into this Bulls nostalgia thing um, in a deeper way than just sort of like Jordan debates, um, because that's kind of like all I do. I mean, I watch current sports, but I probably watch more old sports than current sports, and that is it's heavy on the Bulls. But you know, I watch. I make sure I've seen you know almost every Super Bowl in full. Um, you know, other old NBA games, old ABA games, some other NFL stuff. And that's, I, I just, I watch a lot of old sports. So it, it's been funny seeing that, not funny, obviously this is a terrible time, but it, it's been interesting <laughs> seeing everybody watching like 96 Bulls games and people being like, well, John Sally was on the Bulls. And I'm like, yeah, what, what do you, so like I grew up, um, in Evanston and then we'll met and huge Bulls fan. The Bulls were the first team that was my team independent of anything that my parents provided. They were a club that I rode with and saw the entire rise in terms of their, their dynasty years, as far as like the things that happened just prior. I, my family, I was born in 81. My family moved, um, 
back to the Chicagoland area is where they came up, but they met on the East Coast. I was born in New York. So we came back in 84, and that's obviously when we drafted Jordan. And so that my entire like Bulls experience, as I learned what basketball even was, was the rise of the Bulls. And I was a Bulls head. I mean, like, you couldn't, you couldn't not be. And my room was just covered in newspapers and Sports Illustrateds and posters. And I watched everything. I taped everything. Obviously, long before we knew that YouTube was going to, you know, make my tape collection obsolete, to say nothing of the fact that I just called it a tape collection. Um, but I recorded everything. I watched everything. I read everything. And I kind of, as my career got started, just took that for granted, I wasn't necessarily focused on sports writing and I sort of like recalibrated at a certain point. But I remember one thing I was talking to, um, uh, so I've known Rick Tellender since I was 16. Uh, I had a radio show in high school and I would call people who were in the phone book, which was basically just Northwestern football players and sports writers to try to get interviews. And I did an interview on the set of the sports writers on TV for folks who remember that show. Awesome. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Rick has been one of my mentors, um, since I was 16 and in early 2010s, he and I were talking and he was saying how it was so interesting to him, how gradually the things he thought of as current events became history and that he became one of the custodians of that history just by virtue of having lived through it. And that's kind of how I feel right now with the 90s Bulls thing is that obviously there's a whole generation of Bulls fans who don't know anything about it in terms of real time, a real time experience, which is what makes what NBC uh, Sports Chicago is doing right now is, is so cool because people are are accustomed to the highlights or maybe this game or that game. But this idea of sitting down and feeling out the, the 96 playoffs as they happened and having to watch every game um, the way that we did at the time, it's it's been cool for me to see other people see that. So I guess that's how I became a Bulls historian is just because it was like my field of choice in part because I was kind of cataloging it in real time. I mean, like I said, newspapers, SI, um, and I didn't really go to many games. I may have only gone to two 90s Bulls games, um, it was just, you know, it was like an impossible ticket. But yeah. uh, but it didn't change the fact that you always felt like you were right there. The 96 book I wrote, again, like the reason I wrote that was because in real time, after we won in 96, I remember immediately thinking how cool it was that Jerry Krause had taken one championship team and over the course of two years totally rebuilt it except for obviously the two most important people plus the coach. But everybody else totally rebuilt it into a totally new team that became this juggernaut. And that was the basis for that book. That was the first thing that I wrote in that book. And now I'm getting started on this book, Six Rings. And I want everybody listening, if you've got an MJ story, email it to me at sixringsbook at gmail.com, but I'll do you one better. If you have a Chip Schaefer story, email it to me. If you've got a John Ligmanowski story, if you've got a Keith Booth story, if you've got a Cliff Levingston story. Oh, Cliff if Levingston, you, if you, Yeah, man. If you, <laughs> listen, if you got an Ed Neely story, I want to hear it. If you, if you were uh, 
you know, if you were one of the peop- the city workers who put up the hoops in Grant Park for Shoot the Bull, I want to hear it. If you or someone you know was one of the yellow coat security guys at the stadium, I want to hear it. If you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm collecting all of these, so the book is going to be a combination of the kind of history that I've been writing. So if you read my piece on I'm Back, or if you've read the Bulls book, or my Jerry Krause piece that I wrote after he passed away, things like that, then you have a sense of my style or like my threads on Twitter. But it's going to be this whole other component that I'm really interested in because the Bulls were... It was so weird. The Bulls were a global phenomenon, but they were like hyper local. And wherever you were, either in the city or in the suburbs, or probably in, I'm less familiar with it, but Northwest Indiana, probably downstate, if you, if you were anywhere between Gary and Milwaukee, um, you had a touch point someone you knew, or you, you know, you ran into this player, that player, et cetera. So, that's it's it's going to be this fusing of two styles like these essays these historical breakdowns that i do and then these very personal chicago and chicagoland area stories yeah it's a great niche i actually just went back and read how the goat was built a couple couple weeks ago maybe a week ago And what struck me was just like the level of research that you were doing in terms of like every available book written on the 90s bulls, which there were quite a few of them. Uh, You just had all that stuff. Basically, it felt like you took a highlight, a highlighter to all the books and just compiled the best parts. And that level of research was really impressive. I remember the first time I met you was at a Bears training camp, probably in like 2012 or 13. I think you were writing for the Red Eye at the time. I was doing something on Devin Hester. You were I there. Think it, yeah, you walked. You did a walk and talk. I would always, well, I'll tell you exactly where it was, and it was 2013, and you did a walk and talk with Hester. Um, he ran away from me, man. He's like, come on, man, yeah, let's go. Exactly, exactly, because there was that really limited, literally a physical space between leaving the practice field and where guys would then walk away like – in Bourbonnet, but like past the fans to like a team only spot. And I remember watching you and you walked with him from that spot. I mean, it couldn't have been more than like, I don't know, 15 yards, 20 yards. Like it wasn't like a long distance, but you, but like you were on it and you got a whole story in that little walk. And I was like, this is dope. Yeah, well, I just remember, like, that was very cool. I remember meeting you there and seeing what you've been able to do, just, like, finding your niche as a sports writer since then has been awesome. I wanted to mention that you wrote, in my opinion, probably the best piece of Chicago sports writing the entire year of 2019 when you wrote about George Hallis, George Hallis basically playing a part on the 12-year ban on black players in the NFL uh, in 1936. It was the third season of the ban. You wrote this on Windy City Gridiron, the SB Nation Bears website. This thing got picked up by basically every media outlet in Chicago. The Bears themselves uh, made a video talking about it. I don't think that would have happened without your piece. Uh, So just seeing you get so much acclaim for that and now seeing what you've been able to do, uh, writing about the Bulls, getting some bigger platforms to do it on, it's been awesome to watch. Uh, So I figure we should just get right into this and, and just talk about... Uh, well, where where should we start this, Jason? There's so many so many points we could start at talking about the '90s Bulls. 
I don't know. I guess I mean I guess the one big thing for me was just like some. I guess the best story. I know that's like super cliche. Just like best most interesting stuff because I've I've read like some of the Jordan biographies and obviously there's like so much stuff about MJ out there. But just like and I, just about I, this team in general. Yeah. So like I mean just like best story out there about the Bulls, Ricky. If you have anything specific yeah. as well, I got please, a question go here. So I I read the goat. How the goat was built. You know, like I said last week, and then you also have this same uh, anecdote in your story on Jordan sending the on back facts in 1995. You say that Phil Jackson, uh, the the one condition he had, because this is like 94, 95, Phil wants to leave the Bulls at the end of his contract. He says the one condition that would bring him back is if the Bulls got rid of every major player from their first three-peat, including Pippen. So that part jumped out to me. Why did Phil Jackson want the entire thing torn down? So I'd have to read between the lines to answer that question. And that's certainly something if I get to interview Phil, that's something that I will ask him. The source of that is from Second Coming by Sam Smith, which is it's sort of like an unofficial sequel to the Jordan rules. And it's definitely, I mean, it doesn't have the sizzle of the Jordan rules because the Jordan rules, first of all, what a wonderful title. And I think titles go a long way. Um, But the Jordan rules changed the way that the public viewed Jordan. It, it, it offered a very different view. And so it was right in your face and, and it came out right at the beginning of the second title. So there was like, Oh man, they're hot. And now this book, et cetera. So Second Coming didn't get nearly the attention, but if you're a Bulls historian, if you really want to learn more, if you're watching all these great games, uh, you should definitely you should definitely check it out, buy it, go to the Harold Washington Library, whatever. Um, and that is the only place where I have seen that information, but it fits with some things that Phil has said in other sources, uh, including Eleven Rings, um, his... He's got a few different books out, but 11 Rings is the one he wrote after he won, obviously, all of his championships as a, as a head coach. And he tells this story that his father, Charles, who was a traveling Pentecostal minister in the, um, in the Northwest, that his father would tell him that a minister only had five years of his congregation's attention. Like, he, like his message would only be heard for five years after which he had to move on to the next, the next uh, church, the next town, whatever. And Phil somehow along the way decided that a basketball coach gets seven years. I think that he wanted number one, if he was going to stay to be sure that everyone would be hearing him. And this was this idea that by this point, the people who were left from the championship years were Scotty, Will Purdue, and BJ. And those were the three guys who, according to Sam Smith, he told Jerry Reinsdorf, um, you know, if I if I if I come back, and he said he was undecided, if I come back after his after his contract was up in '96, that I wanted to I want to have a whole new roster. He he liked this idea of having to coach this new team that had not yet heard his message. And if you think about that, he did that. Um, Three times. I mean, so basically you have a de facto reset on the Bulls 
um, after 95, where once we traded Purdue for, for Dennis, there were only two guys left, Scotty and Michael, from the first team. And so he has to train this entire new group of players who'd been there some since 94, some since 95, and then some new in 96. He has to train this entire new group on how to work together, how to be champions, but even less esoteric than that, how to run the triangle offense, how to run the type of defense they want. Then he did it with L.A., but then he did it with L.A. again because he left after 04, and then that whole team was redone. You know, the only people who, was, who were back from, uh, the first, from the three-peat that the Lakers had to those two titles in 09 and 2010 was, was Kobe. So he, he, in a way, coached four different teams to championships. And I think that that kind of a challenge appealed to him. I think that at a high level, you get to a point where you do find you want to find different challenges. And Phil's was definitely the opportunity to mold uh, a new group and to bring them along. Steve Kerr said that Phil Jackson, I can't disagree with him, that Phil Jackson's greatest coaching job ever was 94. You know, where he they lose Jordan and they've got these new players. They got Kukoc, Kerr, Wennington, Pete Myers, and they managed to win 55 games a year after with MJ, they won 57 games. Now, obviously, the impact of, of Jordan was felt in the playoffs. And what Phil said was that the reason that they ended up losing was, quote, Scottie Pippen didn't have a Scottie Pippen which I liked because it's both it's, it's complimentary to Scotty, but it's also obviously calling out Michael, but also talking about that dynamic. I, I like that a lot, but yeah, so that was, that was what it was. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if Sam, Smith, if Sam Smith says it happened, it happened. So um, when it comes to bull stuff, he's, he's the man. He's the OG. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. It, as you've done reporting on sort of this bridge, between the first three-peat and the second three-peat, one thing I picked up on reading your book and reading your On Back article was just how close we came to that second three-peat never really happening, mostly because of Jordan sticking with baseball and, you know, saying that he wanted to play two or three years with the White Sox. Mm -hmm. If baseball never goes on strike, perhaps that happens. Perhaps he does not come back to basketball uh, in the second half of the 94-95 season. Maybe he isn't there all the 95-96 season. Uh, but the other sort of thing that could have ruined this before it ever happened was a trade of Scottie Pippen. And yeah. Pippen was in several pretty public trade rumors, one with the Seattle Supersonics, which would have returned Sean Kemp, who was my second favorite player behind Jordan, or my favorite non-Bulls player, I should say. That's um, its own category, for sure. So back that, in the 90s, totally loved fair, Sean yeah. Kemp. And then uh, there was another trade rumor with the Clippers that was pretty highly publicized. You wrote about Pippen even making up a trade rumor himself <laughs> in dying. 1995 <laughs> to Phoenix in an attempt to get out of town. So yeah. because you know more about this than almost anyone just how close were the bulls to trading scotty pippen and what was sort of the bulls thought process like that uh you know going through that time with Krauss? so they were they were right at the edge of it with seattle um and they were they were so close that jordan ended up calling george carl who's coaching seattle and who obviously also went to north carolina and jordan and this was reported at the time Jordan was telling George Carl, you know, I know like Sean Kemp is the bigger star, but you know that you're getting the better end of this deal, right? He was like, you know, Scottie Pippen's the better player, right? And like, 
Scotty and Gary Payton, you know, like that's a championship. So he was pushing him to do it. Um, and I didn't even know this full story about the role that David Kaplan played in accidentally, I mean, thankfully, gosh, but in accidentally botching the trade. Um, and I, uh, I encourage everybody to go check out uh, our boy C. Red Fred, who had a great podcast interview with Cap. And, and Cap told the whole story about how he, he fell upon the story um, by running into Sean Kemp's, I think it was he ran into Sean Kemp's agent in an elevator and the trade was basically done. And so then Cap went on the air with it. And, um, but that jives with the stuff that I had already read, which was that the Sonics owner, Barry Ackerley, heard um, all this pushback around from Seattle fans that it was, I think it was twofold. One was that Sean Kemp was very popular. Fans didn't want to trade him. But two, there was a cloud over Pippen because this was right after the 1.8 seconds. So people were kind of down on him. So that trade came very, very close to happening. Um, The Clippers trade on the trade deadline of 1995. So the way that Sam... Smith wrote this in his in Second Coming, is that that was that was a done deal, and all that had to happen was that Scotty had to, and this is a great story too, was that Scotty had to sign off on it and like agree to like that he wouldn't hold out and that he was signed through ninety eight, but you know like he would play ball basically, and the Bulls were in Miami for a game against the Heat, and Scotty and Ron Harper and Tony Kukoc went out drinking. And Harp, who had just come over from the Clippers, and the year before, he had called the Clippers, he had said that playing for the Clippers is like being in jail, and they suspended him for it. And so, as Sam Smith tells it, um, Harper and Scotty and Tony are out drinking the day of the trade deadline, and Harper is like, I'm paraphrasing here because I, I don't know the exact quotes, but he's just like, whatever, however bad you think this is, just wait just wait until you're on the Clippers. You will be begging to come back. And Scotty had spent the past two weeks, I mean, like you said, he, he created his own trade rumor that he invented in Chicago a couple days before the All-Star break, which was in Phoenix. And he invented a trade uh, of him going to the Suns for Dan Marley and Wesley Person and leaked it to Chicago reporters and it then spread to the point where he was answering questions about it and saying things like, yeah, I don't know where – you know, I don't know. I, I haven't heard anything substantive, but like that's, that's what I hear. And Jerry Colangelo had to go and like reassure Dan Marley, who was a freaking all-star, like don't worry about it. We're not going to trade you. Charles Barkley is in the news like, yeah, I'd take Scotty in a minute. So Scotty like invented this whole trade rumor, but there were trade rumors – and discussions um, as confirmed by general managers of the Nuggets, 76ers, and Bullets. There I saw things with the Nets. Um, you know, who knows if the Phoenix thing was ever really considered, even though it was uh, fake. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, the way that Sam describes it is they, they got close and that the Clippers were calling, trying to nail it in, and, and Scotty like wouldn't take the calls. Now I got in touch with a guy named Andy Roser who was um, in the front office for the Clippers at the time. And he told me, he was like, I honestly don't remember it being that. He was like, I don't remember us being as close as that. 
he was like, I can tell you other trades of players and tell you exactly why they broke down. But, like, see, part of the hazard of being a historian is you end up getting conflicting information. It's just, like, it's impossible not to because people's, you know, folks, people have, memory is not perfect. So I'm more inclined to take the word of 1995 Sam Smith than of someone now looking back. Um, not to say that Andy Roser doesn't remember what happened, but just I'm I'm more inclined to say that Sam Smith that his reporting was accurate, although probably he got it from Jimmy Sexton, who was Scotty's agent. You know, I mean, you're splitting hairs at that point, but the point is, is that we were really, really looking. Um, and then, of course, there was a trade in '97 where we they, we tried to move Scotty to the Celtics because they had those two first round picks and um, and the the Bulls were going to take Tracy McGrady and maybe Ron Mercer and the wild piece of that story so that story had again it was reported at the time and then um, T-Mac told the story with Scotty on the jump maybe um, a couple years ago and so that kind of got a lot of traction but the wild piece about that is that you know we had our own pick which was whatever it was 28 29 and then so we're working out players for that pick and so Jerry Krause is business as usual at that Phil Jackson is in the Birdo Center for those workouts but we're also then trying to trade Pippen for these Celtics picks and Phil remember at this point MJ's on a one year contract Phil's on a one year contract Dennis is on a one year contract and Scotty's contract is up after 98, along with seven other players. And, and so Krause felt like, well, if I make this trade, Phil Jackson probably won't resign. So he has nothing to do with this anyways. So Krause banned Phil Jackson from the Birdo Center when they were working out players who they might take with the high picks that they might get from the Celtics. Um on the basis of like this has nothing to do with you because if we do this you're probably going to leave that is absolutely wild i don't think i've ever heard that celtics one. i've heard like, i heard the sonic stuff and then obviously i read about the other stuff in the iron back stuff i did not realize that celtics stuff too. how many times are they going to trade scotty pippen Un- unbelievable just how close it came to all falling apart before we talk a bit more about the iron back stuff which he wrote uh on nbc, NBC sports chicago uh we're gonna take a quick word from our sponsor Bet online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. We'll let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. It's all open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to, And be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. It's at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. We are back. Cash Considerations, a Chicago Bulls podcast. We are here with guest Jack Silverstein talking about some old Bulls, some Bulls history. We were just recently talking about Scottie Pippen and how many times he was almost traded during the dynasty years. Talk a bit more about the I'm Back stuff. Again, you wrote a piece on NBC Sports Chicago for the 25th anniversary of that. And that was March 18th, the infamous facts, two-word facts, uh, when he came back. Um, 
And I guess just some stuff, let's just, I guess, talk about Jordan a bit, about how he was obviously playing baseball with the White Sox, how the the MLB strike kind of played into it. There was a great great anecdote in your piece about how he was angry with uh, Ron Schuler about the parking situation. Uh, I guess just talk about MJ, the baseball player, for a bit. He obviously, he retired in 93. He went and played baseball. You talk, While his overall numbers didn't look good, you talk about how he was improving and getting better. If the strike did not actually happen and... MJ was like kept playing, kept getting better. Do you think he would have stayed playing baseball and wound up getting to the majors? So I think he definitely would have stayed playing baseball. I think that if the strike wasn't a factor, whether because there was no work stoppage or because the union and the owners, although the more I read, it was really the union and Don Fair. But if he hadn't ended up feeling like he was being used by each side as leverage against the other, and if he had then, if if none of that had been a factor, I do think he would have stayed and played baseball. I think that he would have stayed out the year for sure. Um, I think that there is a good possibility that he would have ended up as a September call up. Um, I, I I don't know. I can't put like a number on it, like what percentage chance there was. But I mean, there was a good enough chance that they were talking about it. Um, in spring, I mean, Ron Schuler mentioned it as well in, in spring training, the Sox that year after the strike, you know, then in 95 fell off only, I'm looking at it right now, only 68 wins. That was the year we fired Gene Lamont and replaced him with Terry Bevington. And it wasn't as if the White Sox at that point had a big run of young outfielders coming. Um, this was like a little bit before the kids could play. And so it's not as if like he was in spring with like Mags and Caballo and Singleton and whoever else, like none of the outfielders he was competing with, um, for, uh, it, with the Nashville sounds, which was the white Sox triple a affiliate at the time. None of those guys ended up playing in the majors after the sounds, like some of them had some major league experience, but none of them went to the majors afterward. So I don't think it's inconceivable that he could have, worked his way there. And I think even if he got close in 95 and didn't quite get it, I think he would have stayed. I think that he was really enjoying himself. I think that he was scratching an itch. I think that he was finding peace and perspective and solitude. And I think that Michael, as much as he loved basketball, or as he always says, the game of basketball... Um, on the basketball court. I think that he loved challenges more. I think that that is ultimately what drives MJ is besting a challenge. And I think he also, and, and he loves basketball and is obviously, you know, in my opinion, the greatest to ever do it. Certainly you, you couldn't build a starting lineup without him. Um, so obviously the challenges that he sought and that he enjoyed most were in basketball. And that was part of how he came back was because he was, you know, he was involved with the game throughout his retirement. And then we saw when he retired in January of 99, after the 98 season, you know, he'd go back and he'd practice with a team that wasn't even his teammates, you know, other than 
Tony and for one year, Ron Harper and a few guys here or there, Dickie or Bill Wennington. But, you know, he would go back and do that stuff. I and mean, we know about all these pickup games over the years that he's played. And obviously he came back with Washington. I think that he always was going to have that that desire to come back and play basketball. And I'll tell you what, I took him seriously at his Hall of Fame speech when he said, you know, you might look up one day and I'll be playing and I'll be 50. And he said, don't laugh. And I think the next line was what uh, barriers are just illusions or something like that. Like, I think that's really how he viewed everything. So why would I bet against his ability to make the major leagues? And we're not talking, he's not going to become the Michael Jordan of baseball, but um, could he become the, I don't know, I'm looking at this 95 team. I mean, who are the Lyle Mouton of baseball. (laughs) Yeah, all right, so Lyle Mouton's a great example because he played... Um, with the sounds they had traded for him the White Sox had traded for him from the Yankees and he played with the sounds and then he was the outfielder who got the most tick in the bigs that year Um, but in spring when Michael was there he wasn't there yet so he's he's not one of those guys who he's competing with but sure yeah Lyle Mouton or look we had Dave I was in the middle of my baseball transition at that point. So, uh, Dave Martinez, uh, a very young Mike Cameron. I've never heard Warren Newsom thirties. I don't remember that guy. So yeah, I mean, people look at the two Oh two batting average that he had in class double a Birmingham in 1994 and they clown him for it. But how I always felt. And then as I read more, how baseball insiders felt, that was a stunning achievement. This guy hadn't faced competitive pitching since he was 18 years old. He comes up to double A ball and hits 202. Um, he hit 276 in August of that year. He hit 252 with the Scottsdale Scorpions in the Arizona Fall League. Nomar Garcia Parra, one of his teammates. Um, he, had, he, he, he was a base stealer. Um, he was a grinder. I mean, he played 127 games for the Barons. He let, he was tied in the team lead, uh, team lead for the most games played. Um, and then he was pumping out, I don't remember how many more games with the Scorpions. Cause that's a shorter season. I mean, he was just playing and playing and playing and playing. He was the only guy over the age of 25 on the Barons to play a hundred games. And he was 31. So, yeah, I mean, he turned himself into a hitter, and he was training with everybody. One point that I made in the in the piece is that, you know, he loved coaches, but he was also working at such a genius level in basketball that he was also, he would, he would express a certain level of skepticism maybe, or he would have some pushback if he wasn't totally sold on a coach. Um, but I think that he preferred to be well coached. Dean Smith, uh, MJ, he, he spoke, he spoke highly of, of his head coaches at different points, but you know, he butted heads with Doug Collins. He didn't take to the triangle right away. He still would tease Tex Winter about it. And, you know, he loved Johnny Bach, but Johnny Bach's not trying to tell him like to pass, you know, cause he Bach was like the defensive specialist. And, but in baseball, he was lapping up all of the lessons and all the instruction at every level. Um, I'll tell you another two bo- two great books. 
And Ricky, you mentioned that, that it, it felt like I'd read everything for how the goat was built. Well, there are two books that I hadn't read and that I've come to in the last few months and they're just, they're gold mines. But if you've read, I'm back, if you read my I'm back piece, you saw it is the books by Bob Green. And Bob Green was a general assignment columnist for the Tribune. He wrote a piece about some tragic story. There was like a kid in Chicago and his something like his mother and his mother's boyfriend had like killed his older brother and they went to prison. The brother's dead. And it was this terrible story. And Bob Green wrote about it. And, and the Bulls ended up inviting him, Bob Green and the kid to Chicago stadium. And Jordan, who had always had this like deep affinity for anything related to like make a wish foundation or anything where it was like helping children. Um, like they bonded over this and then he and like MJ and Bob Green developed this like intense, like deeply trustworthy friendship. And I point that out because when, when the book hang time came out in uh, 90 late 92, maybe or early 93, I remember very distinctly being of the impression that like, Oh, this is the fluff book because like the Jordan rules took it to him. So then they put this book out and like, oh, all right, you don't have to pay attention to this. This is this is the puff piece. Like it's, you know, the cover is Jordan and Bob Green smiling, hamming it up like, oh, okay, he gets along with the author. This, bu- this, this book must be bogus. And it is so good because of that level of trust. Michael just opens up and I assume that Bob Green had a tape recorder running, but like it's like stunning the the self-reflection and the level of detail and just like i guess almost like the intimacy in terms of like the closeness that it's hard to get close to a subject and there were just no walls up as far as i can tell um and so bob green wrote two books he wrote hang time and then and then kind of like how jordan rules has second coming Hang Time was the famous one, but then he wrote this book, Rebound. And Rebound, like he was in Arizona, he was in or he was in Birmingham with him, and he was in Scottsdale with him. And again, it's just like Bob Green, like, wow, this is incredible. So I recommend everybody who wants to learn more about MJ definitely go and get that stuff. And and there's a lot of material from my I'm back piece, which came from Bob Green's book rebound because of the honesty that Michael was delivering that he's basically like Bob Green's like transcribing it almost and bringing it straight to fans. And that's where that parking story came out. This idea that it, it, the reason that Michael ended up like the last straw for him leaving camp in 95 was that as part of the White Sox, you know, counter move to what the union was saying is they were trying to get all these minor leaguers to play in replacement games. He said, well, anybody doesn't play a replacement game. You're not allowed to park uh, in the um, team parking lot, which was guarded by security. You're going to have to park on the street. And Michael was just like, I'm not trying to ask for special treatment. I'm trying to just be a regular minor leaguer, but like, let's all also acknowledge that I'm not a regular minor leaguer. I'm Michael Jordan. I'm Michael fucking Jordan. And I have to, if I have to park my Porsche, I mean, shit, if it was in a cord, like forget even that it's a Porsche, 
whatever whip Mike had, like if he had to park it out there, there's going to be people all around it nonstop. It's, he's just going to be totally mobbed. And he was just like, that felt to me like he didn't understand me. And it just felt like a really unnecessary way to prove a point and to try to have a power play. So I think, but for that stuff, yeah, he would have stayed. And I think he would have um, competed and tried to make the major leagues. And I, I don't know. Do you want to bet against him? I sure don't. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got one more question here. I don't want to go too long. Because uh, thanks for already spending so much time with us already. But uh, you talk about this a little bit in your book, How the Goat Was Built. This idea of, you know, which three-peat team would you take? The first three-peat team or the second three-peat team? You answer this question in the book. So I'm just going to ask you straight up and I'm going to ask you to defend your answer. Which three-peat team would you take? Which one was better and why? All right. So... What I said in the book, and I stand by this, is that I think ultimately there's something to be said for the respect of the hierarchy and that, that, that went on with the second three-peat because the teams were very different. See, the first three-peat is tons of guys who were first-round picks who hadn't worked out. Stacey King, first-round pick, didn't really work out. Will Purdue, first-round pick, didn't really work out. B.J. Armstrong was coming off the bench the first two years of the championship run, and he thought he should have been starting over John Paxson. Will Purdue wanted to get more minutes and, and compete with Bill Cartwright. Stacey King definitely thought he should have been starting over Horace Grant. Um, you know, Dennis Hobson in 91, we Bulls fans kind of forget about Dennis Hobson. He was the number three pick the year he came out. I mean, he was a stud, and he's supposed to back up MJ as the first guard off the bench, and that never worked. You know, Craig Hodges, although not like an attitude guy, I mean, he was definitely like a, he'll stand up for himself, but he was definitely like a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. I've never read anything, and I've interviewed Craig. I've never seen anything that made me think like, oh, he's trying to get someone's minutes the way that like, Maybe Stacy or BJ were, um, but even Craig Hodges, you know, he had had some wonderful years in Milwaukee, and you know, a, a, a damn good player. Um, Horace, obviously, somebody who started to feel as if he wasn't getting enough respect. Scotty, somebody who was feeling at a certain point that he wasn't getting enough respect. And yeah, we won three titles the third one got a little bit dicey um and it's good that everybody seems to get along i loved when they had the uh when they had the reunion for the 30 year anniversary in 2011 there's that great picture of everybody um out on the court and they're all smiling and it's awesome like it's great to see like it, it looks like they're all good but there was a different level of bond with that second three-peat and the only reason that that is significant from a basketball perspective is that I think it's easier to play when everybody really feels like they know their roles, they respect their roles, they embrace their roles, everybody knows the hierarchy, everybody knows exactly what they're doing. Um, 
there was intensity. And I think one thing that we're going to see in this uh, ESPN documentary whenever it drops is some of that intensity. Um, and Tim Grover has a great anecdote in his book about Scott Burrell being on a trainer's table in the middle of practice and getting checked out for a hamstring or something. And Michael comes in and is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And like, everybody's hurt. And why are you on, get your ass to, you know, like we're going to see some of that. And I mean, we better, it's a freaking 10 hour documentary, but, um, but there was a greater level of understanding between everybody of like, who was where, like Michael and Scotty, I think really had to have those two years apart to learn some things about each other and about themselves. And I think Phil needed that gap too. Um, Steve Kerr talks in uh, Roland Lazenby's Michael Jordan biography, The Life, about how Dennis Rodman looked at Michael, I'd have to get the exact quote, but it was something like almost like a, like a puppy dog affection, like a sweetness and um, a, a, like, a, like a reverence almost to, to Michael. Uh, I think a really important thing to remember about that second team is that almost all of those guys were getting their second or third chance. So you've got like the first team and we drafted Michael. Um, we basically drafted Scotty. We drafted Horace. We signed Paxson after only one year in San Antonio. This is basically his first team. We drafted BJ, Purdue, King. Um, and, and Scott Williams was an undrafted free agent. So the only guys who had, had significant time elsewhere were Bill Cartwright and Haji and Levingston as far, and, and Dennis Hobson a little bit. And then Bobby Hansen had had a long time. And, and then 93, we added some other guys who had had a little bit more time. But as far as like the core players, they were all guys who it was like, I'm here on the scene in the NBA. I've made it, and the Bulls are going to be my home. And they're all like, why aren't I breaking through? And the second three-peat was very different. Steve Kerr was, you know, a career backup. I mean, he was a nice player at University of Arizona, helped them go to a Final Four, but he wasn't a star. And he was, you know, struggling in Cleveland and then he was struggling in Orlando. I mean, he wasn't like on this trajectory where he was going to be someone who, you know, would hit shots to win championships. Um, Bill Wennington was playing in Italy. Tony Kukoc was, yeah, we drafted him, but that, that was a long seduction to get Tony over here. Um, Ron Harper was considered damaged goods and he'd had that good year with the Clippers. Obviously he was who he was in Cleveland, but then he came over here, and he was supposed to be the next Jordan replacement in 95, and that flamed out. He couldn't do much offensively. They had to retool his entire game. Um, if you want like a little glimpse, like the first little glimpse of the 96 Bulls, go watch game six against Orlando in 95, the game that eliminated us, and watch what Ron Harper did in that game and how we played with length in that game. So you got Ron Harper, who's kind of looking for another shot. You know, Luke Longley was a high draft pick, but they traded him from Minnesota. So we got him, and he spent his first two years here rotating with Cartwright and with Purdue, and he was playing behind Purdue for most of 95. So I don't think he knew, like, oh, I'm about to be, a, you know, the locked-in starter on a, on a, on a three-peat team, on a 72-10 and 10, 72 and 10 win team. 
you know, you got Judd Bushler who would bounce around, Randy Brown had bounced around. Um, shoo, who am I missing? But you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was, it was guys who were feeling like this is my next and maybe final chance. And I think that when you have that, when you've gone through those things in life, your approach is very different. I also think that they ended up playing with comparatively a softer MJ. I mean, he w- he was still the ball buster, but it wasn't quite on the level that it was. He has a great quote to to Phil in 11 rings, where after he scored the 55 points against the Knicks um, in his fifth game back of his comeback, he like went over to Phil and was like, that's not going to happen every night. And like, these guys have to be aware of that. Like, this isn't going to be the same MJ show. And he even told Tex Winter. Tex Winter was like, do we want to veer away from the triangle? And Michael, who had always, you know, he had called the triangle the equal opportunity offense. He had derided it as a tool that Phil was going to use to strip him of the scoring title. And because Phil had been like, maybe you shouldn't win a scoring title this year. He was trying to refocus him. And he went to Tex and was like, no, 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 we need the triangle. We need the triangle. Like, that's how all these other guys are going to be at their best is, is the triangle offense. All of a sudden he's like, you know, the leader of supporting the triangle offense. And, you know, he's now he's got this personal friendship with Scottie Pippen. Whereas before it was, you know, they were obviously the two best players on the team, but he sort of had like a fractured lead relationship in the first three-peat because Pax was his longest tenured teammate. He was really close with Pax. Scotty was his best teammate, but Bill Cartwright was his co-captain. And by the second three-peat, Scotty had all those roles. He was his longest tenured teammate. He was obviously still the second best player, but he was also the co-captain. So I think there was just, oh, everything was locked in. Um, you know, they became boys with Ron Harper and there was just more cohesiveness and everybody knew what they were supposed to do. And I think because of that, if you were around for both three-peats, you'd be inclined to say that you remember, you know, ran the back end of the Bulls bench in the second three-peat really well, Bushy and Randy Brown and even like Dickie Simpkins or Jason Caffey. But all those guys played fewer minutes in the playoffs than their first three-peat counterparts. But as a fan, at least, I never felt like I knew exactly what Stacey King's role was or exactly what Will Perdue's role was off the bench. Or like, you, you knew like Cliff Levingston's the energy guy and, and Scott Williams by 93, like his role was much better defined. Um, I just rewatched game six of 92 and I'm actually going to write about that. I did, I did as well recently. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm going to write about that um, for the newsletter tomorrow. And, you know, Stacy played a huge role in that. Yeah. Um, definitely. Scott Williams was, Bobby like, Hansen. masterful. Yeah, Bobby Hansen hits, yeah. hits that 1-3. But, like, even watching that, it, it felt a little bit like an aberration, which was partially why it was so cool. But, like, the second three-peat guys... You kind of knew exactly what each guy was going to come in and do. Steve Kerr is your shooter. Tony is a scorer. Bill Wennington has his baseline jumper. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, You know, Randy Brown is going to give you defense. You know, Judd Bushler is going to be really active around the rim, but can also step out and hit threes. 
And you knew what, in 97, you knew what Brian Williams was bringing. In 98, you knew what Scott Burrell was bringing. I just think it had much more of a tightness. And, you know, one thing I really hope we see in this documentary, um, I think it was right before the playoffs in 98, Phil brought the team together and he gave them an assignment. And he told everybody to write down something about what this run meant because they all knew it was as much as Michael didn't want to admit it. They kind of all knew this was going to be it. Done. Remember you got, you got, I think the number was 10 guys on the last year of their contract, including Michael, Scotty, Dennis, and, and then Phil and Phil brought them all together and said, write something down. And some guys did and some guys didn't, but Michael did. He wrote a poem about being on a team and they like turned all the lights off and like lit candles and they read these pieces like a like poems or just little notes and then they put them in a coffee can and burned them and i have to assume that's not on camera but holy shit if that's on camera um incredible but like i can't imagine the first three pete doing that i can't imagine like them having both like the tolerance for that kind of activity and even the desire to be that close. And the 93 team, remember, they lost Hodges. Lost. They they didn't resign Hodges. They lost Levingston. Levingston was still so close to him that he showed up in Phoenix for game six in 93. And there's a great photo of him hugging Michael and Scotty. Imagine like showing up to the team you used to be on um, to cheer them on. And so they'd lost those guys and they lost Bobby Hansen. Um, whereas like the second three Pete, you've got, let's see the entire t- typical starting five plus Kukoc, Kerr, Bushler, Brown, Wennington is 10. Uh, and then Dickie Simpkins was on the, you know, he was on the roster 96, 97. He just wasn't on the playoff roster. Uh, but he was on the playoff roster in 98. So that's 10, 11, and then maybe if you want to count Caffey because they traded him midway 98 to, as, like, to motivate Rodman, which pissed everybody off. Um, you know, that's like 11 guys who are together for three years at the peak and just where their roles aren't changing. No one's trying to like steal a starting spot from somebody else. No one's feeling disrespected everybody's in lockstep and i think that's pretty powerful so like yeah we're the 92 bulls the peak maybe in some respects you know you got guys who are younger yeah i don't know you could argue that i wouldn't you know i wouldn't disrespect it craig hodges told me he thinks 91 was the best team and and phil has had alluded to that in some ways at some points but you know, then you got 96, 97. I just think as a whole, that second three-peat, there's something so magical and beautiful, um, but also tactical about having everybody pointed in the same direction. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really special. Yeah. Something real quick here before we wrap up. You mentioned the gap, and uh, I've seen you, you've written about this before. I think you were talking about it on Twitter the other day. I brought it up as well in the other I'm Back article that was written on The Athletic recently by David Aldridge and Michael Lee. They quoted Steve Kerr talking about, like, and, and they got quotes from, I think it was like 
uh, maybe it was like Kenny Smith yeah. and like Hakeem Olajuwon yeah. about like winning, about the Bulls winning eight in a row yeah. if they if Jordan would have would not have retired. You mentioned that gap and how important that was, and you've said that you think. You are you totally agree with Kerr. Kerr called it preposterous the idea of winning eight in a row. Kerr obviously was on this. He played with the second three B team. We he coaches the Warriors. He's been through all this. I mean, all the stuff you've read. When I re- I read the Roland Lazenby the Life book and just like reading all the stories, but just like how much these runs wear on guys. I'm also of the opinion that uh, they that would have been ridiculous. I know Bulls fans like get upset about that. Like, well, who knows? Like Jordan easily could have done it. Like, I feel like absolutely not. Real quick here, just like. Tell why you think that there was absolutely zero chance MJ and the Bulls could have won eight straight. So I think there are a few different reasons. One of them is what we just talked about, which is the fact that there were personalities involved. I don't think we win six without Scotty. I don't think we win if you replace Scotty with like a more traditional second best player on a championship team, whoever you want to pick one you know, late stage Dwayne Wade or Pau Gasol or early Kobe or Kevin McHale or Walt Frazier or Sam Jones or whoever you want to be. I don't think we win six because of the unique way that Scotty affected Michael. And so if we lose Scotty at some point, let's say they let's say they stay together. Um, so I think we win in 94, but then it's possible that Horace still leaves. I don't think we beat Orlando without a power forward. Um, I don't think we beat Houston at that point. And if Scotty leaves at some point, even if we get the five, it's just like, think about how many times we almost traded Pippen. Like, if that happened, that, that cuts it off. If we... Don't get Rodman. Um, that cuts it off. If Michael stays in baseball, that cuts it off. I guess we're saying in this scenario, Michael doesn't yeah, reti- never retires. He never retires, right. Okay, well, um, what happens if after 96, Phil leaves? Like, what if Phil, you know, look, after 98, I mean, say whatever you want, but like, Phil, even though he had this beef with Kraus, um, Phil still cleaned out his office and left. And Michael had said, like, I won't play for any coach other than Phil. I remember there being some chatter of, like, well, maybe if maybe if Frank Hamblin takes over um, and does, like, a year and then Phil comes back, maybe that will be amenable. But I don't think there was any guarantee that Phil was going to stay after 96. I think that – I or, or look at it another way. We don't sign Harper to that deal if we're in the midst of winning championships and Michael is still there. But Ron Harper turned out to be a, a, a major piece of the puzzle in the second three-peat. I mean, you basically, you know, as Michael got older, but he's playing every single game, and I mean every game. He played, he played the only game he missed between the end of baseball and uh, his last shot against Utah was one preseason game in 97-98. The flu game was his 245th consecutive NBA game, uh, including preseason and All-Stars. So Harper meant that Michael didn't have to run around defending guards. I mean, Michael spent a lot of the back end of the second three-peat playoffs guarding threes. And, 
you had Scotty who could guard the best perimeter player, but then you had Harp who could guard the second best. Well, we're not spending four million a year or whatever it ended up being on Ron Harper um, in nineteen ninety four for the ninety five season. If you still have Jordan, if you're winning championships, um, there's just there's just too many variables. And while I'm not a person, I w- I'm not going to say like, oh, we couldn't have defeated Houston. Um, I think that if Houston had gotten into the finals in 93 or in 97, we still win. Um, I would have loved to have seen Scott, Scotty led Bulls team in 94 face him. But like Hakeem, Hakeem's run in 94, 95 is still underrated. And I've never seen, I mean, that was like the Michael Corleone, you know, like today I settle all family business. Like when, <laughs> yeah. when MJ retired, there was this vacuum of like, there, you've got all these dream team era stars and Hakeem wasn't on the dream team. He wasn't an American citizen yet, but he, he was on the dream team three in 96 after he naturalized. But like, he's in that, I just call it like the dream team generation, like all those guys. And 94, 95 becomes the opportunity to distinguish yourself from them. It's like, all right, you're not going to catch Jordan, but you can at least separate yourself from all these guys. And Hakeem, in 94 and 95, led the Rockets to playoff wins over, like, every major contender to that, like, secondary... I don't want to be dismissive to, like, what he did and call it secondary, but let's just say, like, he beat all of his major rivals. So he beat... Ewing in the finals, he beat Shaq in the finals, he beat David Robinson in a conference finals, he beat in the first round in 94 Clyde Drexler, and he beat Carl Malone twice, and he beat Charles Barkley twice. That was, that was who he ran through. Barkley twice, Malone twice, Shaq, Ewing, Robinson, Drexler. That is a hell of a run. Right, and, and Malone, um, I say Malone, but John Stockton was first team All-NBA both of those years. I say Shaq. Penny Hardaway was first team All NBA in '96, and you know those Suns teams were loaded. That '95 Rockets team, they only won 47 games, and they went on the road for every series. They were they faced elimination games in the first round when that was a best of five, and in the second round they were down three one to Phoenix. That was the Mario Ali kiss of death uh, series. So, like, the things that Hakeem was doing, the level at which he was working, I'm not going to say the Bulls couldn't beat a great center. It's, like, weird that we never caught one. Like, the centers we faced in the finals were Vladi, Kevin Duckworth, Mark West, Ostertag twice, and Irvin Johnson, the other Irvin Johnson. But, you know, we beat Ewing in the playoffs. We beat Alonzo Mourning. We beat Shaquille. So it's, I'm not saying, like, we couldn't beat a center. I'm just saying, like, Hakeem was operating on a serious serious level i think anytime i think a a really good way to look at like one way to distinguish players on an all-time basis is anyone who won an mvp and a finals mvp in the same year that to me is like there are different ways to like measure who had a great year but like when you win the m when you were the best player ever the best player in the league and you led your team to a championship and you won that finals MVP and you were the best player in that series, that's like a really special kind of masterclass in basketball. And remember, 
Hakeem's the only other guy other than Jordan to have won MVP and Defensive Player of the Year in the same year. Like, I just can't disrespect that. So, no, I think I think that the Rockets get theirs. And it's just there's too many what-ifs. Michael said it in 99. He was at the Birdo Center. He was practicing, and someone said, like, do you look around this room and you see six banners and think, oh, there could be seven, there could be eight. And he goes, I don't know, maybe, but, like, we got six. It's pretty good. So, <laughs> sure, sure was. <laughs> so I, I just I, I rock with that. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, I was going to ask you about the current polls, but you know what? Screw that. We're not going to slowly this pod with that. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Again, very, very nostalgic talking about these old bulls. Uh, let every, let our listeners know, again, uh, your Twitter handle, where you could f- find all your stuff. Yeah, definitely. So you can um, find me at Reed Jack. That's R-E-A-D-J-A-C-K. And you can check out the uh, the newsletter, which is all the behind-the-scenes um all the background of my research and there's going to be some interviews. So like these first few weeks of newsletters, um, it's been original research, but it's been stuff that kind of is exists. Um, and I've been building up the stores for interviews. So we're going to start to have some interviews coming and I've got some good stuff planned. Um, and you can check that out at readjack.substack.com. And like I say, if you understand what I'm about to say, with no further explanation, then you are the type of person to read this. And that is this. You can uh, subscribe for packs a month or pip a year. And that's all I'll say about that. And then, most importantly, though, send me your bull stories. Send me photos of gear that you have. Send me you ran into this person, that person, or like you were that person. Like I want to talk to people who worked at Chicago Stadium. I want to talk to people who worked at restaurants where guys came to all the time or country clubs or nightclubs or whatever it is, like whatever. Send me your stories. Six, the number six, rings book, six rings book at gmail.com. Send me your stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much again. That was Jack Silverstein, Bulls NBA sports historian in general. Great stuff from him. Thanks, guys. Uh, and yeah, and actually, Ricky, Ricky, I got one question for you. What did you think of the newsletter that broke down MJ and David Stern's calendar in 1993? Yeah, I absolutely loved that. I was going to get into that, but uh, we didn't really have time. But uh, Jordan's gambling uh, allegations are just absolutely fascinating, too. I didn't realize just how deep they were. I was born in 87, so most of my memories of the Bulls dynasty come on the second three-peat. And I do remember, I mean, I definitely remember where I was when Jordan said he was coming back when he sent in the I'm back facts. And I remember a little bit watching the 93 finals. Uh, Same. But, you know, the gambling stuff was just way over my head as like a six year old. You know what I mean? No idea. (laughs) I had no idea about any of that besides for what I've read and what I've watched on like YouTube and stuff. And the one thing about that that really struck me is that I've seen this screenshot of MJ as a meme before where he's like wearing dark sunglasses in an interview with the Madra Shad. I believe it was before... Uh, a 1993 playoff game or a finals it was, game? It was right before the finals. It was it was aired it was aired at halftime of game one. 
in the Bull Sons vinyls. And you linked out to a video uh, in the newsletter. Everyone subscribe to the newsletter. It's awesome. 33 bucks a year. It's fantastic. Uh, a must read for any longtime Bulls fan. Uh, just you linking out to that YouTube video was hilarious because that entire video is about gambling. And I just had oh, yeah. no idea that it was already getting like that much national attention. Like, of course, I knew that there was like the conspiracy theory that Jordan was suspended uh, for gambling during Which I don't his believe, first by retirement. The way. You address that. You you do a great job dispelling it and showing why, you know, it, it just doesn't really add up. Uh, but I didn't know it was as much of a national talking point yeah. as it was in uh, man, just like, you know, you think about things that happened in the past, how they would be in the Twitter era, and it, that would just really be crazy. Wild. <laughs> yeah, no, it'd be, it'd be totally crazy, and it was, it was, it was being reported on, I mean, it was, he had missed going to the White House, which he took a lot of flack for, and then it turned out that he was gambling during that, and he had, <laughs> he had, um, he had gotten a federal judge to basically lie on, unknowingly like from his own word um uh, with the slim bowler stuff he's got guys he's got one guy who turns up dead with hundred eight thousand dollars worth of uh, combined cashier's checks from mj on his person and i mean it was like it was it was heavy duty and within weeks of james jordan being murdered there were reporters who were tying those two things together and 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 not just not just there were national reporters and there were like local reporters in other markets. Um, but Norm Van Leer was saying it and Phil Jackson had to contact Norm Van Leer and be like, bro, like, come on, stop. Like, this isn't what it is. Um, at overnight camp that summer, when I was at overnight camp and we had like a skit night, my cabin performed like Mike, you know, like the Gatorade song. <laughs> But instead of doing anything basketball related, we just had every, there was 10 kids in the cabin. So we had like little quick scenes of like shooting dice and playing cards and like, but like me and another kid saying like Mike and you know, we're all 11 years old. Like that's how intense and that's how well known all this stuff was. Um, It was everywhere. I mean, somebody held up a sign at a 93 playoff game that said like, like Mike question mark, bet on it. And held it up right behind the Bulls bench. There's a great photo of of MJ with that behind him. I mean, it was a huge, huge deal. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely crazy. I've, I've read I've read some of the stuff about the gambling and like that that Lazenby book as well. Just he was absolutely wild with that stuff. Absolutely crazy. Uh, one o- that yeah, that'll be it. One, one other thing that I, I heard this just offhand during All Star Weekend that a reporter. Uh, based in Washington, D.C., who had been around the team, I think, a little bit when, uh, or just around people in the organization who were with the team when Jordan was on the Wizards, was telling us just about how Jordan used to race his motorcycle on the street going super fast late at night. That's a totally unsubstantiated story. But even the Jordan rules had some anecdotes Mm -hmm. about MJ driving his car super fast on the street and no one knowing that it was... Michael Jordan in the car, uh, and some of that stuff just blew my mind too, man. Such yeah, a or the, or the, like or the he, stuff that was like it. the only thing that would like make him feel alive. I feel like right. is like teetering on the on the edge of death. You know what's interesting? Jerry Seinfeld did the exact same thing when Seinfeld was at its height. Um, he and I think Larry Charles and maybe some other producers, but he would and he talked about this on, on like the DVD behind the scenes, whatever. Um, that they would take these whips out on 
Mulholland Drive and like the Hollywood Hills, um, like at night. And if you've ever driven up there, it's like not the safest place to be even in the daytime. And they would just like race these cars around. And Jerry Seinfeld later reflected and he was like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like I've got like, you know, all these people's livelihoods are wrapped up in my well-being and like all the millions of dollars and sponsors and networks and everything. And I was just like risking it all, just driving. So I don't know, maybe there's something to that. Um, but yeah, man, that was, that was just Jordan or like the stories about how he would, uh, when they flew commercial and he would bet players, like he would bet teammates that his bag would come out first before theirs but then it turned out he was like paying off the baggage handler to like put his bags up front like that shit's crazy absolutely wild uh thanks again jack uh for coming on this has been cash considerations a chicago bulls podcast with uh, jason pat ricky o'donnell our guest jack silverstein we're part of the blue wire network we're brought to you by betonline.ag Please go check them out. Even though there's not sports, that many sports, or basically any sports right now, there's still plenty of stuff that Bet Online does. Uh, again, we are part of the Blue Wire Network. Please follow Blue Wire on Twitter at Blue Wire Pods. Uh, for us, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Runs Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all those places. So thanks again to Jack for coming on. For Jason and Ricky, we'll talk to you guys next time, guys. Take it easy.